at the first in, in its giving and in its uh, in its means and for its particular purpose was in fact full to the degree in which God intended it that it would cause us to look to Christ as it should and in and, and that respect, we then again draw our attention to the fact that the covenant itself was not the fault. It most certainly must have been man for the covenant was given because there was a better covenant and God was planning on that from the beginning. But until he made it there, he had provided for man this provision of the law that would seek to reveal Christ in part and parcel until the fullness of the glory of God dwelt in the body of Jesus Christ. Until man saw the full revelation, God was providing, if you will, an appetizer for that sacrificial lamb that will now serve as the feast for mankind, for those who would be saved by the blood of this lamb. And in fact, that is what we know to be true, that Christ says that we must take of his body, that we must eat and we must drink, and we have these uh, ordinances with uh, our communion, the cup and the bread that uh, resemble and remind us and point to that which is the daily bread, and that is Christ, the, the true feast of heaven. And in fact, what we begin to see is there are some underlying things here in, in chapter uh, 8, verse 8, that we will see that may be more significant to our view of Christ than even simply looking at the second covenant as simply a promise. It causes us to think deeply about who Christ is. I, I want to go through, hopefully I can, I can put these things in order as I would like, that we can make good sense of them. Uh, but I, I want to look at uh, the, the topical things first for finding fault with them specifically with men and as I thought about this and and thought about how foolish it seems to me that we would think that there was an issue with the covenant and not the people of the covenant I, I thought how how funny it is because when we have a promise or a contract we never say when, when the contract is void when someone has failed to meet their obligation we never blame it on the the contract Nobody ever does that, goes to their lawyer and says, hey, I had a contract with this guy. He didn't keep his end of the bargain. It's the contract's fault. But yet there are biblical commentators and there are even professing Christians that would allow this supposition from this that somehow there was a fault in the contract. We cannot see it that way. And simply I want to present to you that uh, if we believe that God is who he is, then we must say the issue is not with the covenant itself. It most certainly must be with them who are declared here, being sinful mankind, all of those after Adam, all of those who are, uh, have effectually felt the wages of sin to abide upon their heads, those who have sinned against God and God alone, as David would declare. And, and in order to make that point for us, I'll point us back to the Old Testament back to Psalm 1830, that we do not blame either the contract or the God who had made it with his people. Psalm 18, verse 30 says, As for God, his way is perfect. The first covenant was God's way. And this is what he had presented to man at this particular point in time, uh, if you would say this dispensation of time, that this contract, this obligation for man and for God 
was to be kept this law. And Psalm chapter 18, verse 30 says, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler to all those that trust in Him. For who is God save the Lord? Or who is a rock save our God? It is God that girdeth me with strength and maketh my way perfect. And what we begin to see is that even the first covenant was to make the way perfect. But the problem is how the first covenant is viewed. First covenant was viewed as the means of keeping perfect rather than seeing that it was as the text declares uh, as we look back in, in those that we had seen earlier, a copy and a shadow. These were a copy and a shadow and a pointing to Christ that Christ would perfect the Christian. How was God making the way perfect with the first covenant? Simply put, that as far as it was effectual and pointing us to Christ, it would therefore perfect Christians. As far as we would see Christ as the keeper and the fulfiller of the law, we could have a salvation. Was the first covenant able to save? Well, not directly, but was the first covenant able to save in some respect? Yes, because it pointed those in the Old Testament to Christ. When we think of Moses, when we think of those recipients of it, those who truly were devout to looking for the Savior to come, the Messiah, those who trusted not uh, in the blood of the bulls and the goats, and the doves and the birds and any other animal sacrifices, but trusted that whatever God told them to do, that it was good, as this word declares in Psalm. In fact, when the text says, finding fault with them, he is directly aiming us to look, as the gospel declares, at Christ first and then at our sin. Finding fault with them. Well, what do we have? We have the party who brings the covenant, God. We have God existing in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that He has presented to man this covenant. So we have God, and we have the covenant, and then we have the recipient of the covenant, man. And we automatically are pointed not to God, not to the covenant itself, but it says finding fault with them. The reason that the text says that is because God is God, because God is perfect in all his ways, because God is able, like to present himself in the body of Christ without spot or blemish, because he has fulfilled the law, because he has kept the law, because he has thought not evil, done not one thing evil, that he is perfect. Therefore, whatever he declares is perfect. It's good. It's beneficial for man. And uh, be reminded here that when the first covenant was given, it was not to simply make man better and to somehow wait for the second covenant and then be perfected. Everything that God has done is so that man will look to the Son of Man and say, that is the one like John the Baptist would declare, the one who comes after me, whose sandal I'm not fit to loose. To say, as the apostle writes, again, John saying, this is the essential light. That John the Baptist being the 
reflective like this is the Christ. And so when we look at verse 8, it says, finding fault with them. It is the gospel model presented that there is perfection in Christ and that as we look to man, we see imperfection. And not just imperfection, because that will be preached this morning from many pulpits. Man is imperfect. No, we need to be honest. Man is full of iniquity. Man is rotten to the core. Man is totally depraved by his sinful nature. Man is not simply a little bit bad. Man is fallen into the deepest pits of despair and sin. No one is able to grab him out from the midst of it. And the gospel declares that once again we must do uh, that which is pictured, the threefold model of the gospel. Look to Christ, then see our imperfection, our sin, and our iniquity, and look to Christ again, never to look back. Something Lot's wife would have done well to remember. To look to God and never look back. That is what the gospel is declaring, and that is what this new covenant is doing that we cannot. It is built upon the foundation, seemingly in a chronological thinking of the first covenant. But I want to remind you again that it goes a little deeper than that. We must again remember the second covenant is only second in, in the linear time that we know as mankind, but in the grand scheme of things, it is the eternal plan of God. It has always existed. In one sense, it's the only saving covenant. Of course, in the literal sense, that is true as well. The second covenant of God could not have been the last covenant only as we say it, but if we think of it properly, it was the only saving covenant of God. And what he would do before the coming of Christ in the flesh is that he would present the perfection of God in Christ through the law. It would serve as a schoolmaster, as we know, and later we see that it would be written on our hearts. It would do uh, two things. It would provide for us the forgiveness of sin, that sacrificial lamb of God, but it would also take away the burden of sin, that which the law previously could not do. There still remained a great burden. There still remained a perfection in the mediator and the administration of this covenant, something that we have uh, really failed to see. Even today, Orthodox Jews are still relying on the administration of some old, outdated covenant because they aren't looking for the Christ. Their mediator could never be perfect because he is a man. He is what they would call a priest. The Roman Catholic Church, similarly the same things. But the text is pointing us to look differently at the, at the text of Scripture. I'm reminded this morning again that this is the Word of God. Not merely the written Word of God, but the living Word of God. If this is the living Word of God before us as it is presented in the text of Scripture, no matter uh, the translation that you use, the reality is that it cannot have fault because it is Christ. Can our interpretation of it or our transliteration or translation uh, to some degree, yes, but I do believe that God has preserved His Word. It is a basis for what we believe, and it should be one of those things that we are easily able to defend as Christians, finding fault with them. The people who are to be made faultless must have fault. It's, it's even kind of funny that we would look at verse 8 in the, in the improper perspective. 
that we would think somehow it was talking about the covenant itself being a fault when in all actuality we know that the first covenant and the second covenant, the outcome was to make sinful man without fault, justified before God, sanctified, pure, pure and righteous and holy. If that is what God is doing with Christ and the knowledge of Christ, and the saving power of Christ, making us without spot, without blemish, how can we not think in verse 8 that the fault is with man? Though you may go home this afternoon and look, and that may be uh, what many would say, that there was an issue with the covenant. And I would remind you that God, before he uh, gave this covenant to man, knew everything. Pat read this morning, he knows everything that we know before we even pray for it, before we even ask. Most certainly he knows the limitations of his own covenant or the lack of limitation, that it would be able even then the first to point us to Christ that he may save to the uttermost, as it says. The problem was that man has regarded God's word as something less than perfect or maybe we do view it as perfect but something less than important after all as we begin to think about the ten commandments we find that each one is rooted in idolatry what is the fault with man it's that first we sin and we love to sin but secondly we don't believe what god says because if we do we would turn from sin as we read uh, from Acts this morning, that he is commanding men to repent. And not just some, but all men. If we really believed the God of the Bible, we would hate sin, we would abhor sin, and we would love righteousness. Finding fault with them is simply a regard to the state of humanity full of thought even in its giving it seems that there have been have have been a, a little bit of fault with man and the reality is that it was so full of thought that nothing else could close the great chasm nothing else could span the great separation of man and god the sinful from the blameless they regarded not the word of God because they regarded not the law of God. They regarded not the law of God because they have regarded not the person of God. Again, Hebrews chapter 8 is speaking so much to the person of God that we oftentimes even miss it and we're looking at the promises of God without contemplating who this promise maker is. It's amazing when we consider it. This is finding fault with them, he saith, or he says. And then he has examined God as he does. And think about this. This is a perfect picture of Christ. Christ being God. Never ceasing to be God. Always from eternity being God. He is examining man. We need to be reminded this morning. Uh, not to simply look at the the covenants and say man i'm glad god gave us another one no he's giving us another one because he is continually examining man and finding fault 
If that is the case, then we know that there is forever a need for Christ, which the second covenant does so well. It provides for us a mediator, a prophet, a priest, a king, a sacrifice, a Lord of all that we are to cling to and without ever losing grasp, look to and trust in. We are to regard the person of God. The law itself cannot be blamed, neither the giver of the law, but the recipient, because he has taken it with an impartial an improper view of who God is. We love to look at God, look at the promises of God and claim them and grasp them and talk about them and never look at the demand for righteousness. What was the law to do except to point us to Christ? What is Christ to do except to make us perfect like Christ? Christ was there to make us look perfect like himself, to present us before God as paid for, whitewashed sepulchers were called, now covered with the blood of Christ. It's interesting when we look at the gospel model and spend so much time talking about the promises and never considering the justice of Christ that he is finding fault, and he is a judge able to declare that we are guilty. Yet at the same time, in the second covenant, he is revealed as a mediator and a sacrifice who is able to dismiss the case against us because the debt is paid in full, and it is none other than he who has paid it. We forget that man has been tempted And even at this time, we're tempted to simply look at the covenant and miss the Christ. Now, if we look back again, finding fault with them, he says, and to quote the Old Testament here, we're looking at Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And it's not directly word for word. If you'll notice, behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And I would remind us even uh, just a small reminder here as to what we believe about Bible translations that, listen, in the New Testament, the apostles would often paraphrase, if you will, or from memory recite something, and they didn't have to do it word by word with what they had read in scrolls or in letters. It was the word of God and no matter how it was presented because it was given under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and because it was true, it remains the word of God to which I remind people often if you think that one Bible is the only Bible, especially here in America, the way we view the King James Bible, I always ask a simple question, how are Chinese people saved? I don't believe they're reading the King James Bible. That's foolishness. And when I think about that, When I think about God saying, I'm reminded with such quotes from the Old Testament that are in the New Testament that it wasn't so much having it word for word and being right on the ideas that Jesus Christ is Lord. It says the preaching of the word, that is is God's calling to expound upon his word, to remember that which we have read before, not to recite, but to recall with great love. 
That is how we must look at this. Finding fault with him, he says, and he quotes Jeremiah, Behold, days are coming. And it's interesting that this occurs in chapter 8 of Hebrews because we're given some insight into those days that are coming. Those days that are coming actually are the beginning of the revelation of Jesus Christ in the human form. God, chapter 1, verse 1 spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. But in these last days, there it is again, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. Through him also he made the world. The radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they and then when we look at this and we see behold the days are coming we should be reminded of that first verse what does it mean behold the days are coming the days are coming when jesus christ the appointed heir of all things the judge the pardoner the lamb of god the creator of all things Nothing less than God himself. That was the point of the entire chapter 1 and chapter 2 to see the deity of Christ when it says these days are coming. Speaking about the revelation of Christ. What is this new covenant that we're being presented with beginning in verses 7 and 8? It's the reminder of the revelation of Jesus Christ. The very things that Christians should assemble with at this meeting that we often call the church, going to church, the very thing that we meet for is to be reminded of this Christ. And so many times, uh, as this particular text will be looked at and preached from the pulpit, we will see the emphasis placed upon the covenant, but not the maker of the covenant. Not he who regarded man, though Uh, we know that he shouldn't have who are you who is man that you would look after him that you would consider him these things that have been presented in uh, weeks past in the text and it is god who is being presented here one who cares for man this good shepherd jesus christ looking after even the one from the 99 that has gone astray why because the days are coming Yea, it is near. Christians are to regard the day of the Lord as one that could come at any time, at any hour, not to be found asleep. Again, the reason for our meeting today, to be reminded of Christ and the demands of Christ, not simply the promises. Listen, if if you're holding fast to Christ, you don't have to worry about the promises. God doesn't need to be reminded of His promises. We need to be reminded that this promise maker is God. That he knows our sin. That is what verse 8 is telling us. Finding fault with them. This morning when we read the text, I, I, I want us to be glad that there's a promise being presented there. That there's being a propitiation revealed. That as Jesus Christ, there's being a sufficient Lamb of God presented as a sacrifice. This temple, this tabernacle, not built by the hands of man, but first and foremost, we should be reminded that this is not a God that you may hide from. In fact, this is a reminder of what we see in the garden. 
How funny is it, Adam, thinking that he could hide from God? The new covenant is telling us you will not hide from God. You can look like you keep the first. You can go to the priest, those of Aaron. They can present these sacrifices for you. But guess what? By the mere, uh, the mere coming to these men, by the mere false trust that you place in these men, it tells me that you're guilty, that you need a mediator. Christians should look at this and say, yes, there is a promise, but what is more important than the promise we won't be in heaven simply thinking about the promise, but we will be worshiping the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. As I contemplated the text this morning in the last days, I thought about that. When, as we sing, when we all get to heaven, we won't be thinking about well, that, that second covenant, man, I'm glad you worded it the way that you did. God was always, through Christ, going to redeem man. The question that we must ask is, is this word, is this covenant, this Christ, and this blood of this Christ, is it so applied to me that I am appearing to look more and more like God? Am I being made holy? In fact, this entire epistle to the Hebrews was to remind them that they weren't being saved by some temporal sacrifices or yearly sacrifice, but they had been saved by this gospel of Jesus Christ. They didn't need to look to the field and check the lambs for something good enough to present to God. They needed to simply look to heaven and say he is there and not only that but we must be reminded that if we truly belong to him he is here now as i said this morning the text of scripture is so richly deep that if we go alone we would drown but if christ is with us always truly we shall walk where he walks we shall not find sorrow in the word of God and deep despair, as many do, because they look without seeing the Messiah. And in fact, we should look and only look for Christ. Behold, the days are coming when I will effect a new covenant. The word effect carries a lot of weight. Not only put into uh, not only to start or to begin a new covenant, but to make it effectual. What that tells us is that he is not saying, I will create a new covenant. For we know that Hebrews declares in those first verses again of chapter 1 that Jesus is not created. Condescended as man to fulfill what man could not. Going to the cross, buried, dead, ascended, raised him self-accredited with his raising as we read in Acts chapter 17 this morning God accredited with his raising and what we see is there is no uh, issue there but it is presenting for us a triune God and it says that these uh, will come into effect 
that the plan of God will at some time not change to something new, but that it will be effectual to those who trust. It will affect the new covenant, not create a new covenant, not think up a new covenant, not repair an old covenant, but make the first effectual. The reality is, like we've mentioned before, even the saints of the Old Testament were sort of saved on the layaway plan that Christ would be effectual both into the future, into the present time for those who believed, and into the past, those who were trusting in God for righteousness. Not in works, not in law-keeping, not in anything else, not in, in land or money or, or clout within the church, not with good church-going parents, but who are trusting in Jesus. I will effect a new covenant. This new covenant that has always been will come because this covenant is Christ in the flesh of man will live without sin in the flesh of man, will always do the will of the Father who sent him in the flesh of man, will die as man, will be buried as man, will be risen as man through God, whom he is as well, and will ascend into heaven and as man serve as this appointed mediator. The text says it, appointed mediator. He is appointed heir of all things in chapter 1, and now uh, from chapter 5 to chapter 8, we see he is appointed as a priest and a mediator. Appointed as a priest and mediator. The very thing that we need. Why? Because finding fault with them who found the fault? It was Christ. It was this second covenant. He found the fault. You know why God found the fault? It wasn't because it was hidden. He found the fault because we would not seek it out. We love sin. We loved faults. They didn't bother us call upon Christians this morning is to trust that Christ has found our fault to trust that Christ has covered our fault to trust that when we open the word of God that it should testify of him and that his blood shall cover and that he shall be not only a mediator but what is important is that we see that he is now the administrator of of this better covenant that which we saw through men in the first is now through the god man in the second see the problem with the first covenant is that it relied upon man's responsibility to god that he would not sin purposefully that he would keep something that he could not and the issue was not only the sinful man but the administrator as well. We're reminded several times in the last two chapters that the priest even had to give sacrifices and gifts of himself on his behalf because he was sinful. It, it was a bad business from the ground up all the way up through the administration because it relied upon sinful man. 
And this morning we see that as the fault is found, and it isn't found as if God hasn't seen it, but it is found as if God would present it before us. And as he is presenting the fault of man, he is simultaneously presenting the perfect righteousness of Christ. And he's saying, here is a heavy fault. And on the other side of the scale is an even heavier, weightier payment in the blood of Christ. Behold, the days are coming. He knows. Therefore, he must reveal if we are to find salvation. And who are we to find it through than none other than this administrator, this mediator, this Jesus, the Christ? It says the covenant is made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. God's mercy so full and God's grace so complete that it has even found its way, this promise, to sinful Gentiles. To, as Paul would describe, chiefs of sinners you ever had an issue in a church in a group of people and i always say there's too many chiefs and not enough indians right there's the reality of sin in the view of paul too many chiefs too many chiefs of sinners but presented before us this morning as a reminder of the greatest, highest, the most high, he who is equal with the Father, the exact imprint of his nature, the radiance, the fullness of his glory, the perfection of God available to man. We simply must do as the text this morning commanded. We must repent. Again, something we are unable to do, something that Christ himself is granting, that we would see sin and turn from it. I've always said the most interesting thing about fleeing from the wrath of God is that to get away from God's wrath, we run directly to his son. To get away from the judge, we run to him. I pray this morning that we see that this Christ is a savior nonetheless he is the judge and the days are coming the end of the age is upon us the final hours for some it may be before the meal begins should god tarry it may be when the lord returns we are to be found vigilant keeping the master's house this is not our church this is christ's church We should be investing his talents. We should be using the gifts that he has given the church. It goes beyond mere finances and is demanded of everything that we have. Do all that we do as unto the Lord. That we breathe when we wake up in the morning for the glory of God. That we somehow find a way to tie our shoes to the glory of God, that we do our jobs to the glory of God, that we speak to our spouses as if it was to the Lord. And as I even thought about those things in conclusion this morning, thought about what it meant to be Christ-like 
And if we were to ask the question, most certainly some of the first responses would be to be perfect, to be without sin. But before we made it probably to three or four people, someone would say gracious and merciful, would we not? We're called to be gracious and merciful like Christ. And if I am perfect, if you were perfect, if your children or your spouse were perfect, there would be no opportunity to be like Christ. We're here to be like Christ because fault is found. Because there is fault within them. There's fault within us. We can only look to this anchor, as Hebrews declares, this anchor that is of the soul and in heaven, this Jesus Christ, and trust that he is sufficient. Be reminded in every circumstance and every uh, communication that we have with either believers or unbelievers, children or adult, that uh, we are to serve our Savior. He served himself as a propitiation, a sacrifice for our sins, how much more so can we give him of this temporal, earthly body and its provision? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, as we uh, consider your word this morning, Lord, we are thankful, God, that in the dispensation of time, Lord, as the eternal God has stepped into time in the person of Christ and has given his flesh, Lord, we just thank you that that provision was solidified before the world ever came into existence. Lord, I'm thankful uh, that the one who is called to do your will and who has gone to the cross and who is uh, most certainly a sufficient sacrifice, I'm thankful that he is the one who created me before I even knew before the world was even in existence, he knew me. God, therefore, it stands to reason that he knew exactly what we needed. He knew how many transgressions. Lord, he knew how much blood must be applied. He knows how to apply it. What more can we ask for, Lord? Yet, you are so powerful. You are so wonderful, God. You say that we have not because we ask not. Lord, our prayer this morning is that this church, this body of Christ, Lord, would not misuse the word of God Lord, and see it only as a way to ask for temporal things, God, but that we would come to you and ask for those qualities and attributes of Christ which we are so lacking. God, and that we would know that your provision of them is not something that uh, we simply must wait for as if it could happen, but, Lord, to know that every provision to look like Christ is in his word. Or to know that this word, this living word, will conform us to the image of the Son. That it does not return void. Or that it is uh, the true embodiment of the treasure that is in heaven. 
in Christ Jesus. Lord, let us not simply look at this as a book to be placed upon a shelf, Lord, but let it be the foundation upon which we build. Lord, we ask that you would bless us and bless the reading of your word, Lord, that you would apply it and that the the outcome would be exponential in spiritual terms, Lord, that we would be Christians like Christ, Lord, that we would follow him, Lord, even in the difficulties that we are promised to see, Lord, that we would be reminded every time, Lord, we ask that you would as well bless our fellowship, Lord, uh, we ask that you would uh, be with our visitors, God, that they would find comfort in your son, Lord, they would find comfort in your word, Lord, that we would strive uh, with them to be like Christ, Lord, we ask that you would um, bless the meal that has been prepared, Lord, that we would use it uh, and be thankful for you for its provision, Lord, and that in, in taking from it sustenance that we would as well use it uh, for the sake of the gospel, for the namesake of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.